Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 16th century Ottoman tomb, known as a turbe in Turkish, had been built on an ancient Thracian site dating back to the 4th century BC, explained Chris. In a large clearing in the forest, surrounded by steep hills, the Ottoman tomb is said to have the body of an Alevi Muslim saint called Demir Baba inside. After its construction, the area became a site of religious pilgrimage. Historic prints inside the Turbe's tiny museum showed the elaborate tomb in its clearing with a mosque beside it, where men in large turbans stood outside. Next to them were two wooden buildings, one a lodging for adherence of the monastic order founded around the saints' teachings, and the other, an imarat, that fed and housed the weary pilgrims who could be seen arriving at the site. But it's not just Muslims that come down here, Chris explained, as we stood over the holy water source believed to have miraculously appeared to the saint. Christians also visit the tomb. They don't believe it contains the body of Demir Baba. They think it is the body of Saint George. The real miracle, said Chris, was that this caused no apparent conflict between the two sets of believers who had somehow found a way to respect each other's beliefs and share the holy site. As I stepped into the cool heptagonal mausoleum, I was greeted by a wonderfully organized scene of religious tolerance. The sacred space had been carefully and respectfully split down the middle. On one side, Shia Muslim icons of Ali, Hassan and Hussein, members of the Prophet's family, hung on the walls beside Arabic inscriptions praising God, the Prophet, and his family. Beneath them, in neat little piles, were tusby beads, rugs, and more of the colourful ties from outside. On the other side of the split, arranged equally neatly, were Christian icons, crucifixes, candles, and rosary beads. Both met in the middle, where the religious lines became blurred. Muslim and Christian offerings scattered all over the tomb in the centre. This intimate tolerance of each other's beliefs left me genuinely moved. I had never come across anything like it before in Europe. So why, I began to wonder, was this not celebrated? Why didn't more of us know about these examples of religious tolerance in the Balkans? For some reason, the region's Muslim history, like Europe's Muslim history, tends to be remembered negatively when it is remembered at all. Even firmer, describes the capture of Constantinople by the Ottomans in 1453 as the greatest disaster on Europe since the sack of Rome by the Goths, as if nothing good came of Ottoman Europe. Hello and welcome. That was an excerpt from Minarets in the Mountains, A Journey into Muslim Europe by Tarek Hussein. Tarek is a travel journalist, author and the creator of Britain's first Muslim heritage trails in Surrey. This is the latest episode of The Journey podcast where I, Cy Wilmore, talk with travel pioneers, trailblazers and thought leaders 
who are pushing the envelope in our industry. As such, Tarek has joined me on the show today. Tarek, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for having me on as well, Sai. It's wonderful to be here and able to speak to you about all of this. It's just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing very well. I've had quite the year and a half. <laughs> so yeah, really, really good. Pleasure to have you on, mate. It's great, great talking to you. Um, yeah, well, exactly as you said, 2022 has been quite the year for, for Mr. Tarek Hussein, winner <laughs> of the British Guild of Travel Writers Adele Evans Awards, shortlisted for the Stamford Dolman Travel Book of the Year, longlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize. I'm going to have to take a breath. Outstanding achievement in literature. You've had writing featured in the anthology The Best British Travel Writing of the 21st Century. You've attended <laughs> literature festivals and you've been published in numerous, numerous, numerous newspapers and magazines. You must be absolutely exhausted. I am. I'm literally at the point where <clears throat> I could feel the mental fatigue. Um, you know, I, I was juggling this with lecturing. I'm juggling this with family life. But I also really wanted to enjoy it. Si. Oh, 100%. You know, it, it's what you all it's what you dream of. You know, <laughs> when you sign that contract, it's what you dream of. Actually, if I'm and I've said this many a times, I never dreamt of this. Because it's beyond anything I could have dreamt of. You know, I would have been happy just to be been mentioned as having written a decent book in the TLS. That probably was the extent of my dreams, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. You know, to find myself on, um, you know, winning an award, uh, winning several awards, winning, um, going on these amazing long lists and short lists for the biggest prizes in in the kind of literature I'm I'm working in. It's beyond anything I could have expected. So. Although at times I, I found myself, you know, sleeping on that four hour train ride up to a literature festival in the north. Yeah. I really wanted to make sure I was then awake, fresh, enjoying it, immersed, you know, engaging with the people who loved the book enough to come out and see me. And, and I wanted to be sure that I, I didn't just kind of tick off things. As, as I went through, because you can get to a point where you're like, okay, so what's the next thing I need to do? What's the next thing I need to do? When 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 you have an avalanche of of quote unquote success like that with with your first book, it's it's nobody prepares you for it, nobody trains you for it, you know, and and you just got to find a way to juggle it. And having you know um, worked in media for quite a considerable amount of time, having done a considerable amount of work in both teaching about marketing, PR and media, as well as obviously actively engaging in it through my own writing and journalism. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, every single trick, every single skill that I had, every piece of experience, I had to use it to, to, to keep the juggling going and keep those plates spinning. And, you know, I have really enjoyed it. But as you say, it's left me exhausted. You know? <laughs> well, uh, folks, on the on the time at the time of recording, it's the 29th of December. Both Tarek and I are pretty knackered, to be frank. <laughs> but but we've got a couple of days to rest and recover and start yeah. 2023 and do it all over again. Like you like you say, so I'm absolutely exhausted, mate. <laughs> you know, but but if I ever have a year like 2022, I'm I'm not going to complain. I'm just going to be much better prepared to engage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tarek, let, tell me tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, where you came from, how you got into travel in the first place. Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I was um, I'm actually an immigrant in the sense that I was born in Bangladesh. Right. I, I came here when I was three years old. Mm -hmm. You know, I was part of that wave of Bangladeshi immigration that we saw um, sure. not just from Bangladesh, of course, from the subcontinent generally mm -hmm. around the 60s. Sorry, starting, yeah, you could say the 60s is when my father and that came along. But mm -hmm. in terms of families, when, when we came along as the children of those early um, immigrant workers, it was probably about the late 70s, 80s onwards, yep. um, you know, when the rules started to change and, and our fathers had to make a decision, do we take our families across or not? So I was part of that wave. Um, and being an immigrant, um, you know, having been displaced from an early age, I think travel is something that, always intrigues you on an unconscious level absolutely you know if if, if you're if one of your earliest earliest memories is having to exist in a foreign place from the off you know movement travel displacement um you know having to go from one house to another early on because of course we were we were we, we came in and we were living in in a very cramped space in right right around the corner from Whitechapel train station, mm -hmm. right around the corner from the East London Mosque, which, as you know, Sai, is a very special place for me. Of course. Um, in, in very cramped conditions where we were sharing, um, we, we were all stuck in one room with my uncle um, and his family above in, uh, in, the, in the kind of story above us and another family in the story below us. And then we moved very quickly to another um, property 
and you know all that kind of movement and and displacement early on i think it, it has an impact on you and not only are you fascinated by travel and movement be it through choice or otherwise but you are also much more resilient to it you know um and this is something I don't think I realized until much later when I saw how other people coped with travel as opposed to myself. That doesn't mean, you know, the first time you, you kind of encounter difficulties on the road and that you're not, you know, you're not left one worried and, and, and panicking and what have you. But I think it just makes you that little bit more resilient. You know, um, my upbringing, as you know, from the book was a tough one mm -hmm. growing up in the East End of London, where it was extremely racist at the time. Although we were very lucky. We had that wonderful bubble kind of community set up because many of us were flung into a, a kind of a, a very tight congested um, part of the East End where there were many, many British Bangladeshis all lumped together. So we had safety in numbers, but it was still quite tough outside of that bubble. And so from, from a very early age, you also develop those um, survival skills, those survival instincts um, about being somewhere where you're not wanted, but also maybe somewhere foreign <laughs> that, that still yeah, feels sure. foreign outside of that bubble. The minute I stepped out, it was all a bit alien and a bit foreign to me because I didn't spend much time there. And, and I was taught that it was potentially dangerous. So those are the skills that I had. But in terms of obviously the earliest travels, so I would have been to go back home. Of course. That was always the journey. You know, our parents um, are from a, 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 a kind of um, a generation of immigrants who obviously had very little money. You know, they were economic migrants. Um, coming out of a country that had been devastated by a civil war, a country that had only just been born. You know, uh, Bangladesh was less than a decade old when I was born. Right. So it was war torn. It was destitute. It was it was it was the basket case of the world. Right. That's right. that's how it was described at the time. The level of poverty is unimaginable for, for many of us living in the Western um, hemisphere because it was absolute poverty and so obviously that's why our fathers came over in the beginning and that's why in the end our families made the decision to move because it was either stay there and hope that you're gonna um, eke out a living and be able to put food on the plate um, and and the stories I've heard tell me quite bluntly that wouldn't have been possible um, right. or make that escape and then also support those that you've left behind which is what we've ended up um, doing so because of that early on home was always Bangladesh um, certainly for my parents and for us because we were conditioned um, you know from an early age to think of home as Bangladesh we would sure. say when we were going back we wouldn't say oh you know returning to um, we wouldn't say you know we're going to Bangladesh we'd say we're going back home you do you know? have any? Do you have any memories? You know, you say you were there for the first three years of your life. Do you have any memories? As, as no, no, no memories from the from the earliest period, no. um, because of course the, those memories that last tend to form afterwards. I have early memories of of um, the UK, right? Um, but the earliest memories of Bangladesh were would be when I went there, aged at around ten, right? And and they tend to be my most romantic memories of of Bangladesh. You know, I think I was in in a mosque about two days ago. And for some bizarre reason, the memory of of giving the adhan, you know, the call to prayer as a little boy on on a, on a little hillock, a hillock outside my um, my um, aunt, my grandparents' mosque in Bangladesh, just wow. came to me. You know, <laughs> I was listening to the adhan, and for for some reason, you know, it's, it's weird how the psyche works. That memory just came to me of standing there and ha and having, I think it was my uncle or my father, I can't remember, um, telling me, you know. No, it was definitely not my father because he didn't go with us on that trip. Um, telling me, you know, you've got to put your hands here. You've got to look this way when you say that. You've got to turn that way when you say that. Mm. And it was the first time I'd attempted it. And and so I, I have fond memories of that journey also because I went, when we did go back, I went back with my um, mother's twins family who were very close to us, you know, almost like an extension of, of, of my siblings. And to this day, you know, they're, 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 they're the relatives we're the closest to. So obviously all those memories of, of messing around with them, you know, going, going climbing up into the forests and jungles where we're not supposed to go, you know, <laughs> swimming in open water, um, stuff like that. I, I still have wonderful, fond, um, formative memories of that period. And that, that was my first experience of, of foreign travel. But it happened in a bubble and it was very different to the travel that I would do later on. My, my moment when I realised that I, I, I really wanted to see the world and, and go and see what this glorious place was and who these glorious um, people were really kind of came about when I when I went off on a football tournament 
um because i i was a very very passionate um footballer when i was younger um you know i would dedicate a lot of time to it and take it very seriously um and i was very lucky one of the one of the projects um in the east end of london um they they were able to get the kind of funding that allowed them to give us these experiences and they took us off to scandinavia wow. um to the dana cup which was then one of the biggest youth world cups in the world right um and so my first experience of travel as well as leaving the country to go to scandinavia which was alien and 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 a, and yeah, a very bizarre experience it was you know i didn't so much as go to the world the world came to me you know i was in this tournament and suddenly i was talking to um you know these these um west indian kids i was talking to um calcuttans um from from india i yeah. i was speaking to um S south americans uh, brazilians from sao paulo it was just absolutely fascinating you know to meet these individuals to hear get a little glimpse of their lives and i wanted to go and see that world that they were talking about i wanted to go and live their lives even now i have this bizarre kind of weird fantasy that wherever i go i want to just live like the locals just just for a period because for me that's the only way i might get a glimpse of what they're about but of course it would still be um you know it will it still be nothing like what their actual lives are because mine would be a temporal experience but from an early age i remember i remember meeting these tanzanians and you know they were just the most fascinating muslims i'd ever met because <laughs> these were muslims from the east who seemed to have this wonderful middle class experience these were muslim africans and i'd grown up with the whole kind of band-aid era where africa just meant poverty and destitution and sure. and nobody there had anywhere near the lives i had and and i remember these tanzanians and and i think one of them gave me a photo that they showed me which i kept with uh, somewhere in, in in one of these boxes this picture of them sitting perched on the edge of an open boot of this kind of souped up car with subwoofers in the back and i was like wait this is africa wow what, what the hell's going on and obviously these were uh, middle class um well to do privileged um you know tanzanians but they were telling me about their life in Dar es Salaam and, and how they would go, um, you know, racing down the strip and, and, and the hip hop music they would listen to. And I was just like, wow, I, I, I have no idea what the world is actually like. I thought I did. You know, I'd read the books in geography. I'd read the atlases. And this is long before YouTube and, and the Internet. So every, every, every way, you, you know, this site, every way we could access it, I'd done that because I was, I was this kind of weird geek that loved reading atlases. I, right. I loved reading like world encyclopedias. I remember those early, um, I think it was, they were, they were published by Osborne, you know, those early, early encyclopedias I with do, wonderful graphics, that um, cartoon graphics. They re I, I really loved reading them. You know, there was no narrative in those, but I just loved learning all those facts. So from an early age, I was fascinated by what the world was like. And then to meet the world, quote unquote, you know, being this festival of football, as well as playing the football, my, my friends were all about the football, the, the ones that had gone. And, and I was to an extent. But I realised what was really interesting was off the pitch, the conversations mm. I, was, I was getting into. Um, and, and like I say, I had this moment where I was like, I don't actually know what the world is like at all. I thought I did. Because what's written in the books isn't what's actually on the ground. Exactly right. You know, the alternative, uh, the alternative aspects to Africa that we never spoke about from sub-Saharan to sub-woofer. It feels yeah. like a completely different. <laughs> that, that'll uh, be the next book side. Fantastic. <laughs> I, oh, I, I'm very reasonable on my fees for book titles. You're very, <laughs> you're very welcome to it. Mate. I mean, it's, you, there's so many things we've just you've just touched on there that we can go off in about 17 different directions. Let's just backtrack slightly. And you spoke mm -hmm. about traveling with your uh, your mother and her twin. That yes. harks nicely to uh, the Harsh Diaries that you wrote Absolutely. for Lonely Planet, yes. which details your your pilgrimage with your family, including your aunt, who was who was wheelchair bound at this point. Perhaps you could paint us a little picture about your experiences in Saudi doing the pilgrimage. Not only did I have this amazing spiritual, you know, kind of how can I put it, deeply, deeply, almost mystical experience with with my mother and my aunt and her son but now i know it's it's there for for the world to read about it you know i i just it, it i can't i can't describe how it makes me feel you, you can't see it but right behind me is a whole host of hajj literature sure. but most of that hajj literature dates way back you know um and we both know that um narratives about pilgrimages stories about going on a pilgrimage are probably amongst the most ancient forms of travel writing 
and and it was something that I, I didn't I didn't ever imagine that I could join that pantheon of amazing pilgrimage writers. But of course, when I set out on the Hajj, I thought, well, this is it. I'm I'm a travel writer. I'm about to go on the Hajj, um, and this is a wonderful opportunity to give an insight and a glimpse into an experience that most non-Muslims have very little idea about. They probably don't understand fully the, the rituals we, we embark upon, the way in which a Muslim feels when we're doing those things, the impact of it, the seriousness, the significance, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wanted it to be a bit of a myth buster as well, you know, especially given the perception of Islam in the world right now. Um, but I also didn't want it to kind of intrude too heavily on my own experience. So I wrote about it either side of it you know i um i wasn't sort of wandering around the car bar with a book in hand just in right, case yeah. <laughs> listeners are thinking how how do you do something like that whilst not taking away from the significance of of the moment you know my my mother and um her twin had been sort of emotionally blackmailing myself and my <laughs> and my cousin rafiq for quite some time um you know they they had both performed the hajj so right. it wasn't trying to fulfill one of their own personal obligations they wanted to perform the Hajj in lieu for their long, um, their deceased father in the case of my mother, that's who she performed it for, and her deceased son in the case of my aunt, who tragically had passed away a few years prior. So it was really to kind of honour people that had been and gone, who they may have uh, made promises to. So you can see just how deeply significant and personal this journey was for them. And of course, for myself and Rafiq, it was the fulfillment of what is seen as a actual obligation religiously. But um, as most people who understand the significance of the Hajj will tell you, it's a moment in which you kind of experience a rebirth. You know, you, you symbolically die. That's why we wear the two, the men especially wear the two white shrouds. Um, which is known as the ihram, because it's it's almost identical to the shroud in which you will be wrapped when you finally um, are laid to rest. So it's a very powerful moment. You know, you, you are supposed to prepare for the hajj as though you are preparing for death. Now, how does anybody prepare for death? It's, it's just, you know, it's especially especially with our busy lives and what have you. And um, I think it was only yesterday I tweeted how um, we've lost something in the fact that we can just jump on a first-class flight, arrive into an air-conditioned lounge and, you know, be whisked onto an air-conditioned coach. And there we are doing the pilgrimage. I think back in the day when you had to join a caravanserai and spend months course, right. on the road, you know, perilous roads where bandits were around every corner because the, the Hajj caravan was such a lucrative caravan if they could rob it and so on. You know, and even, even those who later did it um, on ships and, and had to spend three months at sea or whatever it was. I think that is a much better preparation for that potential symbolic death than jumping onto a flight, you know, kind of get, getting all your um, ducks lined up before you leave <laughs> yeah, at home right. from the busy lives, jumping onto a flight, making sure everything's in place, arriving within a few hours. It's not really the prep you want. So it's always, it was always, I, I think the moment I felt like I was on the hajj when I when I performed that, first um you know tawaf where you go around and i'm with the sheikh and 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 we're talking and that's when it begins to hit home because we're we're in the midst of the rituals at this point and and you're beginning to really you know appreciate the magnitude of what you're about to do you know you're about to die symbolically and then you're about to be reborn, reborn. you know um and and when you go back you you carry this this you know stupendously um, revered title of Haji, you know. Um, I haven't used it in any of my letters yet. But, you know, I, I'm a Haji. You know, and yeah. a Haji was something when we were growing up. It's just what you called an old man, regardless of whether he'd done it or not. It was a, it was an honorific, uh, uh, a reverential respectful. kind yeah. of respectful term, you know. But it's also something you earn, you know. Um, and and as you know from 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 the diaries and from the historic writers that I evoke and bring into the into the narrative it was also historically quite a perilous pilgrimage of course very much so Pe people have died you know mm. um crushings have taken place quite even as late as the um i think it was 2013 2015 
So there was also that aspect to it, knowing that I was taking a very frail, very vulnerable woman. Um, and as you mentioned, my, my, my aunt who had to spend most of her time in, in a wheelchair because mm -hmm. she just can't walk for any length of time. You know, having to do that also meant myself and Rafiq, we went there with a, with a kind of added tension um, and then of, of course an added responsibility. We were their guardians. We had to ensure their safety through this potentially perilous journey. Um, but those, the, 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 those listeners who have actually read the diaries will know that the Saudis have done a phenomenal job with the infrastructure um, now. You know, um, they may have made mistakes in the past and they may be guilty of having not foreseen the, the scale of the numbers that arrive. Uh, in the book, I quote, you know, the, the amount of people that did the Hajj with me was, was the same as, as the population of Namibia, I think it is, I mentioned. Good Lord, well. <laughs> it's just, yeah. So, so an astonishing and, and amazing experience that I feel honoured to have been able to record and now, of course, will be there for, for generations to come to read about. Please, yeah. please do go and read that story, folks. Something else we should absolutely pick up on is, I guess you've just mentioned it there, Tarek, the, the, the uniting quality of football, as you said, in your early life. Um, and this leads us nicely into a young Bulgarian man who was a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, an icon, a bit of a legend. Perhaps you could tell us his name and, yes. and your kind of love of, of the game of football. Absolutely. You know, I was obsessed with football, which is why it's no surprise that I have to kind of, I had to, um, you know, bring it into my, my narrative of my sure. youth. Um, Risto Stoichkov was exactly the right. only thing that I remember about Bulgaria as a, as a <laughs> child, because yeah. he was just this wizard, you know, left footed wizard, very much of the Maradona mold, very obviously so. nowhere near as good as that particular um, god of football, shall we say. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and Risto Stoichkov was somebody who mesmerised us during the 94 USA World Cup. Suddenly, we were all fans of Bulgaria because yeah. they were the plucky underdogs that were put into to the, to the sword. Teams like Argentina in the group stages, teams like G Germany in the later knockout stages. And they were the romantic story of that particular World Cup. And in particular, Stoichkov, who it's, it's no surprise, then goes on to, to, to kind of... Um, I think he wins the Ballon d'Or or comes close to winning it. He also ends up at Barcelona. Golden and, boot at know. the World Cup, I believe. He won yes, the yes, scorer. he got the golden boot, that's right, for all the goals he scored. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was just this wonderful, wonderful um, story of this country most of us knew nothing about. Well, I, I didn't even know Bulgaria was a place because, mm. of course, this was shortly after the fall of, of the, um, you know, fall of communism. Yeah. The, the 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 collapse of the Berlin Wall, etc. Yeah, my knowledge of of this part of the world was non-existent, and and in a way, the World Cup suddenly, as as it did, of course, this year, with many people about um, what's really going on in the Gulf, as opposed to what we think is going on. Suddenly, you know, we 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 knew Bul Bulgaria was a place um, where there were these amazing footballers, apparently, and I also knew that Bulgaria's flag resembled Italy's on its side. <laughs> That's about all I remembered, you know, before. I, I ended up doing my journey. What I didn't know, of course, at the time, and I couldn't um, ascertain this from any of the names because most of them ended with OV um, and they didn't suggest anything Islamic at all. I had no idea that um, Bulgaria had Muslim people living there, you know, actual Muslim Bulgarians. And I couldn't ascertain that from the names because none of the names that I saw at the time suggested they were Muslim. And that may also be about my perception as a teenage um, Muslim Bangladeshi boy at the time, what I thought Muslim names were as well, of course. If you haven't realised, folks, we are, of course, talking about Tarek's book, which is called Minarets in the Mountains, A Journey into Muslim Europe, which was largely inspired by a trip you took, effectively a holiday to an eco farm. Um, yep. And you, if it, uh, this is, again, folks, this is something that's wildly, wildly, you know, not discussed in most media, most books, most magazines in the world. And even Tarek himself, I think it's fair to say you stumbled across this kind of um, legacy of European Muslims, let's call them. They're not, uh, as Tarek touched on there, he was a Muslim who who came to Britain. Yes. These are Muslims who lived uh, in Europe. Indigenous. Indigenous, exactly right. Indigenous yes. Muslims to Europe who lived there for centuries, largely harmoniously with, with non-Muslims. And it's a book that kind of came out of this... Um, 
this accidental discovery, shall we call it? And you heard a little bit about the the uh, in the excerpt at the start. It's uh, Tarek. It's it's an incredible story. It's uh, roughly kind of recounting a trip you took with your your young family, your your wife and daughters, following in the footsteps of the great Ottoman explorer Evliya Çelebi through the Western Balkans. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about the story. Yeah, so after the Bulgarian experience, which made me realize that there was this whole other living legacy, I should point out that I had started to get an inkling yeah, that there was Muslim culture everywhere, you know, all over Europe. I, I knew, I didn't have an inkling at this point, I knew there was, but I didn't realize the extent, I mm -hmm. didn't realize Absolutely. how much of it was still alive, living, and I didn't realize just how large and normalized these indigenous um, Europeans, um, you know, European Muslims were, and so after after the bulgarian experience um it dawns on me that there's this whole other side of of europe that where where muslims have been living and continue to live um for the at least for the last six centuries and and the more research i did the more i realized that actually there are there are three european muslim countries wow. in that you know if we look at um a country such as bangladesh i always use this analogy to 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 explain my point bangladesh is constitutionally seen as a secular country it, its constitution makes it clear it's not a muslim country it's not an islamic state or whatever you want to call it but when you look at the population demographic and the breakdown the religious demographic means most people refer to it as a muslim country just like you would indonesia and 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 you know maybe pakistan where of course some of them do constitutionally identify as a muslim country but bangladesh we see it as a Muslim country because there are just so many Muslims living there, the majority. It's the same when you look at Bosnia, Albania, Kosovo, which, of course, sounds like this bizarre oxymoron, this, this <laughs> thing that doesn't actually exist, apparently, um, based on the popular understanding of Europe. And that's what threw me. That's what made me a little bit annoyed and angry. Um, so it was these three countries um, were part of the itinerary. And then we also went to Serbia, North Macedonia and Montenegro, which were very close to those three countries. And we knew that there were um, going to be pockets of indigenous European Muslims in those um, countries as well. And of course, the, the more research I did, the more I began to realize there were actual towns and spaces that Elia Chelebi had visited, which had been historically, you know, fascinating centers of, of various um Islamic scholarship, sometimes just um, amazing cities of, of coexistence, etc. And so I realized that there was this whole, quote unquote, Muslim Europe that we in the West, half of Europe, knew almost nothing about. Um, it, what I mean by that is, it's not that we don't know there are um, and Bosnians. It's not that we don't know there are Albanians out there. You know, it's not that we don't know that Serbia might have the odd mosque or whatever, right? Sure. It's the fact that we don't actually see it as a part of Europe. We don't, we don't know it from the perspective of Muslim eyes, where suddenly, if you turn up there as, as a Muslim traveler, you're, you're asking, you, you know, you, you feel like you've stepped into a, a Muslim country in many of these places. Right. You know, even somewhere like North Macedonia, which isn't one of the countries that I've described as being a, um, a European Muslim country. You, you step into Skopje, the capital, you could be in 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 a city in the middle of Turkey. Yeah. You could be in a city, you know, um, somewhere in one of the Muslim countries quite easily. It, it's got that much history and heritage. Yet this is never a part of the mainstream discussion of what Europe is. I think it's people realize that Muslims exist in these countries. Everybody knows that. But the fact that it was so hugely ingrained in the history it is the history the harmony between the muslims and the non-muslims is part of who these people are and has been for many years many centuries so much so that they don't really see it as a thing right they just kind of get on with their daily lives and maybe this lady down the the road is, is a muslim and maybe that guy on the next street down is a muslim and it's not really seen as as a thing, a thing. No, no, not at all. And and that's what's really, really interesting. You know, I've been fortunate enough to give talks in places where I've had people from the Balkans present in the in the um, in the audience. And those that have, you know, haven't lived in the Western half of Europe for a long time. They're kind of like, why is this a surprise to you? Yeah, sure. What, what, yeah, wait, nice. are you guys actually surprised by this? <laughs> You know, that's the kind of conversation we were having. But of course, that's the conversation I was having with the Bosnians in Bosnia. They were like, wait, you, you guys don't know this is a thing? You know, it's, you know, Bosnia, especially with the example of Sarajevo, of course, 
um, we often in, in, in the Western half, we'll talk about, oh, yeah, you know, it, it was this glorious Jerusalem of, of, of Europe mm -hmm. in the past where there was a mosque and a synagogue and, and a um, church all within, um, you know, touching distance of each other. And, and all these free faiths would meet in the middle in this square afterwards and blah, blah, blah. And we talk about it as this kind of wonderful, exotic, exciting space. And that's how I arrived. I arrived thinking, oh, I was in this exotic Sarajevo, you know, this exclusive space that nowhere else in Europe can replicate. And then Evlia Chelebi kind of just immediately extinguished all that excitement. <laughs> just he, you know, through his writing, he was kind of like, um, actually, that's what all of this area is like. <laughs> and then he'd take me to somewhere like Novi Pazar, which most um, listeners will never have heard of potentially. And he'd be like, oh, and, you know, there was a church here and a, and a synagogue here and a, and a mosque here. And, and all the Muslims would hang out in the, I mean, all the Abrahamic faiths would hang out in the bazaar afterwards. And you're like, everywhere I went, Elia Chelebi was telling me that this was just the norm. Because, of course, that was one of the great and positives about the Ottomans, there were many negatives, we know this because Western European history has done a great job of, um, you know, unveiling them and making them um, bring to the surface. And so, sure. which is why my book doesn't really focus on that. I know it's already out there. I don't need to tell you that. But one of the great positives of, of course, the, the um, Ottoman Empire was that they, they created this uh, millet system where they would essentially allow the, the certainly the three Abrahamic faiths and, and various sects of those faiths, including various Christian sects and what have you, they would allow them to continue to live within their communities, practice their faith, um, certainly in the case of, um, you know, like the Serbian church or whatever, actively flourish. And, and some historians argue, you know, uh, a lot of the, the his, um, religious heritage of those faiths survived purely because of the fact that the Ottomans kind of left people to it. Just said, yeah, get on with it. If you if you want something, let us know. But otherwise, you can manage your own affairs within your own kind of religious um, jurisprudence. And I think this is one of the great successes of that, um, you know, empire. And it was an empire. It did have imperial motivations. And, and as all empires, it did awful things, mm -hmm. as we know from from all the empires of the world. But this cool. was a period of empire. You know, um, everywhere there were empires. And, and actually, this was potentially one of the more tolerant ones. Certainly in the case of how it allowed um, Judaism to continue to flourish in Europe. We know this because if we go to the to the southwest of Europe at that time, sorry, southeast of Europe at that time, we know that the Christian empire there was kicking them out it's, as it's, it was kicking the Muslims out. So a lot of these things, I feel like, as you say, people know that Bosnians are Muslims. They're like, yeah, of course. Yes, yes. Of course, I know that Bosnians are Muslims, but they don't know the story of this area. They don't know just how long it's been Muslim. They don't realize that there would be no, you know, European history without Islam. This is what they don't realize without Muslim culture in this part of the world and, and arguably across the Western Hemisphere as well. Um, if we look at Jewish history in Europe, it's very dark. It's very, very painful. It's horrific. And we, again, both of us are talking about pre-Nazi. You know, you, you just need to go, go through the ages and you'll see across um, sadly, primarily what was then Christian Europe, sure. um, it was horrific. You know, this country here, um, England, constantly kicked them out, then let them in, kicked them out, then let them in. And it, th this was the pattern across Western Europe. You know, various pogroms committed against them, various genocides. But actually, if you go to the east half of Europe, whether it's the south or, or, or the north, it was a completely different story for the Jews. Why? Because this was Muslim Europe. Mm -hmm. And, and this is one of the things that really, you know, got my goat. You know, I, I, I really got annoyed <clears throat> when I was on this journey. I was like, why isn't this history of the Jews a part of my mainstream understanding of European history? Why do we only know the dark side of things? Why, why can't we know about how, how, how well the Jews did in this part? And, and, and I'm not just saying that. They, <clears throat> they did really well. You know, some of the greatest medieval poetry, poets of um, Jewish poets of... Um, Europe, they only came to the fore, were only able to do their work under Muslim Spain. You know, this is this is not something I'm saying. This is something anybody can go and look up. You know, the, the great medieval Jewish poets, um, the great medieval Jewish writers, scholars like, um, you know, Musa ibn Maimun, or more popularly known as Maimonides, all of these people were able to do their work because they were in a state of complete and utter comfort in many ways, um, they, they felt relaxed enough to be able to start working. Of course, 
including Maimonides, when, when despotic rulers came along, it was a very different story. And occasionally there were despotic, intolerant Muslim rulers. But largely you'll see a very, very positive experience for Jews and Christians under Muslim rule in this part of Europe. And, and that's what really, as, as, I, as I continue to write the story, that's what I began to get angrier and angrier about, because I felt like this, um, this, um, this type part of Europe, this particular narrative of Europe had been um, consciously left out. There you go, folks. Please do give this book a read, if only to calm Tarek's anger, because he's <laughs> we can tell he's getting quite it's passionate. Positive anger. It's, it's positive anger, book. right? It's putting it's putting it's putting things to rights, which which is, I guess, maybe one of the things uh, that this book is trying to do. It's trying to tell a story that for so long has been shrouded in in mystery or shrouded in, should we say, uh, pain and suffering. And there's so much going on. There's so much harmony going on other other than the pain and suffering that is the narratives that have been shared so much over the past centuries, if not millennia. Uh, Minarets in the Mountains, a journey into Muslim Europe, available from Brat Travel Guides. You can go to Brat Guides, that's B-R-A-D-T, guides.com if you would like to buy a copy. We will be back after these messages. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tarek, uh, if, I think it's fair to say that uh, Minarets in the Mountains and a lot of the work that you've been doing might be the culmination of a lot of work that you've been doing over the past few uh, past few years, I dare to say, connected to things like your Muslim trails in Woking. So let's dive a little bit into those Muslim trails. How did the project come about and what kind of inspired you to build these, these heritage trails? Well, yeah, the main thing really was um, the realisation that there was this entire period of British history. Sure. You know, obviously it's called British, for, for me it's British Muslim history, but I just want it to be known as British history. And that's, that's the aim of the trails. It's to make it visible, make it accessible, and make it a part of the mainstream um, cultural narrative in this country. You know, I remember stumbling upon this place, you know, sitting in Woking, this glorious beautiful kind of um, pretty little white mosque in the suburbs of, you know, Surrey, um, um, out, out, sorry, in the suburbs of Woking, um, just outside London. And I was like, what on earth is this doing here? And why <laughs> the hell do we know nothing about it? You know, it's it was just ridiculous. The more I began to look at the story of the mosque, not only was it really, really fascinating, it was built by someone who was from Jewish stock, who kind of masqueraded as a Muslim, was also Amazing. Christian, wanted to set up an entire college. It then turns out that he also founded the country's first mosque. I mean, sorry, the country's first cemetery for Muslims in that area as well, which predated the mosque. You know, um, And then we found out that later on, during the war effort, um, the country's only... Um, Muslim soldiers burial ground was around the corner. So in effect, these were three of the most important sites to British Muslim heritage. And we knew almost nothing about it. I still, on a daily basis almost, I still speak to Muslims and of course non-Muslims. And I'll tell them about the Woking Mosque and they'll be like, there's a mosque in Woking? <laughs> I mean, this is, this, is, this is no insignificant mosque. This was the first purpose-built mosque, not just in Britain, but the whole North Western Hemisphere site. You know, it was built in 1889. And then, you know, this is before we start going into the amazingly fascinating um, individuals that are buried 
in that cemetery who who did such a um, fantastic work to establish uh, a Muslim community in this country. And and of course, the the most fantastic thing about this is that the the majority of them were local Brits, as in they were many of them were white Muslims, lords, ladies, knights, you know, knights of the realm, um, actual blue-blooded royals. The, all these Muslims who had done um, uh, fantastic things in the past, who had been trailblazers, like the very first, you know, translator of the Quran into English, whose own native tongue was English. Uh, quite easily, that translation is quite easily the most influential Quranic translation in the English language, hands down. You know, I don't even have to go into research and data to do that. And, and here we are, we, we've got this great Englishman who did this great work, be it for Islam or not, and none of us talk about it, you know, uh, where, where, where are the plaques? Where are the statues? I mean, you know, not all Muslims agree with statues, but the point <laughs> is, you know, where is the acknowledgement of this amazing effort that didn't just influence little old England up here or little old Britain in, in, in the North Sea? It, in fact, it affected the entire Western Hemisphere. At one point, this mosque in, in history was known as the Mecca of Europe. Okay. Recently, I was I was on a Zoom call to to what is now the oldest surviving mosque in the U.S. in Brooklyn, and and they they were talking about these scholars had come in to look at some of the artifacts in their mosque that they knew very little about, and one of them said, "Oh, and we found some magazines that," and I said, um, "From me, that were published in England." I said to him, "I know exactly where that's been published. I guarantee it's the Woking Muslim Mission." And they're like, "Yes, how the, how the hell did you know that? Because these guys had such reach." You know, they, they were publishing literature that went all over the world. They, they were being discussed in America. They were being spoken about in, even in, in South Africa. And just like that, it was gone. None of us know anything about it. Now, obviously, as a, as a British Muslim, this is such important history to me, you know, and, and to my family and, and to all those Muslims who, on a daily basis, we have to hear the nonsense that we don't belong here. There's nothing, you know, Britain has never ha had any, any time or space for Islam. It's absolute nonsense, you know, and, and, and this rich, rich history that is a part of our national narrative. I felt like if this becomes more visible, if this becomes more accessible, and that's why I created Trails, you know, as a travel writer, for, um, writing for Lonely Planet and others, Trails are one of the exciting ways to engage with local history we we all love it when we're out and, and somebody gives us a trail to follow and kids love it as well and so I felt like that was a great way to connect us but also it was a great way for non-Muslims to engage with this history you know it was it was a fun way to go and learn about these great personalities as well and and start to see it as their history because it's our collective history you know, I, I have to label it British Muslim history at the moment just to give it that kind of notoriety and acknowledgement. But actually, long term, it should just drop into our British history for, uh, as, as a kind of normative part of that. I think collective is a beautiful word there because there's a, a couple of different sites. I, I've been lucky enough to do the trails myself, as you know, Terry. And there's a couple yes. of different sites where, should we call it collectivism or, or harmony or whatever the word is absolutely the theme where you have. Muslims and non-Muslims in the fa in the in the sense of the the cemetery, you know, being laid to rest side by side. And uh, correct me if I've got the name of it wrong, Tariq, but there's the Peace Garden just outside. Absolutely. So the Peace Gardens were once where Muslim soldiers yep. who had you know fought and died for the freedom of this country um, had been laid to rest. Yep. You know, and 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 of course. That, that their story has been almost entirely forgotten. There was, I, I will acknowledge that there was a huge effort during the centenary of the Great War to try and sure. bring these stories to the surface. I still don't think enough has been done. You know, even when we were exploring the Peace Gardens, because of the tiny budgets that we were working to, to develop the trails, we, we only scratched the surface of one or two individuals whose details or whose narratives were quite relatively easy to find in the in right. the kind of popular domain. You know, we didn't have the capacity to go deeper. I still take people on trails and confess that, you know, I don't know what most of these soldiers' lives were about. Some of them only have, have one name on their headstone because of how poorly at times things were documented. Um, but you're right. It, you know, it's it's the fact that this was a kind of, you know, almost an assimilated um, existence within 
normal British life. You know, one of the great champions of that first early mosque was this uh, fascinating man called Lord Headley, you know, a baron, an aristocrat who, who championed the mosque, you know, helped to found the Woking Muslim mission. And without his effort, we wouldn't be where we are today, you know, as, as a community. So many of the modern institutes, when you, uh, Muslim institutes, when you actually unpick their history, a lot of them go back to this. But that, that particular aspect of the story has been entirely forgotten. You know, you've also got Quilliam buried there, whose story some of your listeners may be aware of, because we're now starting to put it out there, who, who founded the very first mosque in Liverpool, a house mosque. Another amazing story where this, this local Liverpudlian manages to convert an entire segment of local working class white Liverpudlians to Islam. That was, that was Britain's first Muslim community, site, a white working class Muslim community. You know, if, if the naysayers knew this, maybe they'd, they'd view, you know, Muslims in Britain in a very different way. It's absolutely fascinating, mate. And, and anybody who's listening, I would 100% urge you to go and see it. You can jump on the train from London, get down to Woking, and it's, what, a 15-minute walk from Woking Station to the absolutely. mosque? Absolutely. Pick uh, up the trails there or download them free, you know, and, and just follow them. Brilliant. What's the what's the best place to go to? What's the best website to go to for people who wanna who wanna learn more? Well, water? they can have a look on my website. Um, my website is tarifhussein.co.uk, or of course the organisation that I worked with, which is everydaymuslims.org. And in both, if you go and you look for um, the Woking Muslim Trails or the British Muslim Heritage Trails, you'll find the PDFs, nice and easy to download. And then you can just follow them and and you know learn about your heritage in this in this wonderful way. And that's exactly what it is, folks. It's your heritage as much as it is Tarek's, as much as it is anybody who lives uh, and who lives in Britain or used to live in Britain. You get yourself to the Shah Jahan Mosque, which is about 15 minutes from Woking in Surrey, and you can take in the Peace Gardens and it's Brookwood Cemetery as well. That's right, where the historic Muslim cemetery was, yeah. Fantastic. I think that is just about all we have time for. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. Likewise, Si, as always, it's it's just wonderful, always you know, chewing the fat with you. And I think that's why... I was happy to do this podcast because it would just be like us, you know, at a, at a, a guild event having a chat because <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of stuff we talk about all the time. So, yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on, mate. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. Folks, you've been listening to Tarek Hussein, award-winning travel journalist, author of Minarets in the Mountains. And you can learn more about Tarek at his website, tarekhussain.co.uk. That's T-H-A-R-I-K-H-U-S-S-A-I-N.co.uk. Thank you again, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much, Sai. You've been listening to the Journey podcast, which is available at journeymag.com. That's J-R-N-Y-M-A-G.com or wherever you usually access your podcasts. I'm Sai Wilmore and thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.